Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. This is a great joy for me to introduce Annie Mortifi, a singer with a remarkable four-octave range. Annie is a member of the Order of Canada, the highest honour bestowed on civilians by the Government of Canada. Her albums, concerts, musicals, scores for ballet, opera, film and TV, and her book, In Love with the Mystery, have generated numerous national and international distinctions and several awards. Annie, you are a compelling storyteller and keynote speaker at major conferences. You facilitate workshops on arts and consciousness, and you have co-founded two foundations, one for social innovation and one for forestry conservation. Annie now lives in British Columbia and is the wife of the late jazz flautist and father of New Age music, Paul Horn. Big welcome to you, Annie. (laughs) You always make me laugh, Chloe. (laughs) It's such a joy just to be sitting here with you and and knowing how deep we run. (laughs) It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And to share this conversation with you is precious. Here we are in your oasis on Cortez Island. Mm. I mean, it really is truly an incredible place to be. It feels like a parallel universe. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I love so it too. So Annie, where do we begin? We've already had so many rich conversations and all of it comes back to the whole theme of compassion. And your whole life seems to be one of compassionate action as an artist, as a singer. And it would be just lovely just to hear your understanding of the nature of compassion and how it's shown up in your life. Well, you know, I was born into a fairly dramatic personality, <laughs> which I, I never prided myself on particularly. <laughs> but as time has gone on, especially when I was uh, trying to learn a little Spanish, and, and when I think of the word compassion, I think of compassion, with passion. And I realized at a certain point that passion, to have deep passion, is where the power is that gives us the impetus to act, to create, to think, is to have a passion that is so deep. And I had to take a long journey to actually heal 
my inability to choose the passions I chose. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I think we've probably all been there. <laughs> Actually, when I started doing workshops for the first time, I didn't know how I sang. But compassion became central because I realized that what happened when you began to breathe was you began to release deep feelings. So I often found myself in tears when I sang or suddenly feeling very strident or feeling very outraged or feeling full of love. And I began to recognize that our passions are like the colors a painter would want for their palette to be able to paint the depth and focus of a beautiful view. And that our culture, certainly I was brought up very British, so I understand that <laughs> <laughs> my, my family, you know, it, it, passion was not encouraged. It was control. Mm -hmm. It was be logical, be sensible, and hold on to your passion. But I don't think you can be compassionate if you don't have your passion running. Mm -hmm. And the passion is the passion to see all children safe, the passion to see the forests thriving, not burning, mm -hmm. to see the animals, the passion to have an encounter with a, a whale out in your little kayak and not feel overwhelmed by the sense of communion with another being of another species mm -hmm. who is really part of your own family. Mm -hmm. And to let that love relationship between the whale or the eagle and yourself take root in you. It opens your body to a wealth of experience that it wouldn't otherwise have just through the thought. In our culture, we think about, we'd so often hear the phrase, I love you, body, soul, and mind. But we don't say, I love you, body, soul, mind, emotion, feeling, passion. Mm -hmm. It's somehow we've kept it in the upper four chakras. Right. We haven't dropped into the feminine what I call the feminine chakras, mm -hmm. which are the, feel, the earth tones, mm -hmm. the first three chakras, where there is chaos and passion and choice and power, mm -hmm. all of those deep, deep energies that run the body. And it wasn't until I started to sing and had to sing from my abdomen and then even to get certain passions, I had to bear down even deeper. It's like a woman giving birth to actually contact the root of your your groundedness. Mm -hmm. And so when I began to look at that, I realized how scary it is mm -hmm. because feeling passion exists on areas where you don't have control. I have no power mm -hmm. to change what's going on the, on the earth except in tiny, tiny ways. But those tiny ways have to be fueled by a great passion and a deep, feeling for consciousness to be able to carry mm -hmm. your thought and vibrate the vibrating matrix of which we are all a part. And so, so much of my life has been about how do I be firmly planted on the ground in my passionate body that is chaotic at times and that is capable of primal passion for transformation that gives me the juice and the energy that would actually give me the capacity to fulfill my destiny.
Because without that passion, you cannot become who you're meant to be. You drift along from thought to thought, from image to image, from idea to idea, and they're all tantalizing and they're all interesting. Like the idea enlightenment is a great idea, but it takes incredible passionate vigilance mm-hmm. to rid yourself of habits that are keeping you from awakening. So I became really interested in my own life and how do I bear down? How do I not only fly in my music to the heights of the transcendent self that can listen to the glories of the universe, if you like, but also can be so impassioned that I will act on behalf of nature and of other people. That's lovely. I love the juxtaposition between impassioned, where you said just then, impassioned and compassioned, really exploring how the practice of art gives us the opportunity to really generate this impassioned, embodied compassion, not just like a sort of mentally conceived idea of doing good out there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I did did an album many years ago called Serenade at the Doorway with my dear friend, uh, David Feinstein. And we were looking for a way of being with people as they're facing death. Whether it's the death of a dream, the death of a loved one, the death of your own life, the death of a vision that can't come to fruition, whatever we grieve for. And as I was doing, working with it, I began to work in hospices. And it it started a seven-year period where I worked with dying really all over the world. And it was a wonderful, Mm -hmm. wonderful journey. I worked actually with Mother Teresa in the house of the destitute and dying. And what I realized is that when people are dying, they go through many things. They're not all peaceful. And some people are, you know, get very angry and don't want to die and feel ripped off. And if you don't know your own anger and they get angry at you, you get indignant you react in some way, but when you're, when you're a good friend of your own anger and have worked it through so you can utilize it as a fuel as opposed to something that robs you of your dignity, if you can really know your grief and be able to travel with your grief when you're sitting at the bedside, when people are weeping for the loss of a loved one and they are weeping to leave their children or whatever the story is. If you can feel that grief with your whole body, but your body is familiar with your own grief. So it doesn't need to entrain. It can actually be there with compassion with the passion that is going on in the souls around you. And you become a a stabilizing influence. Where the energy is the strongest, people tend to entrain with it. And so when I was with Mother Teresa, she would walk into the room and people would perk up, you know, have more attention on what they were doing. It wasn't just her notoriety because at the time she had the peace prize i just heard about her and and gone to calcutta to work with her but she was so embodied and so herself that it caused you to do the same 
you became more authentic mm -hmm. in her authenticity. That brings up the whole question of presence, isn't it? Yes. How compassion is communicated even without words through a person's presence, even yes. before they speak, even yes. before they communicate. And the presence, I think, is a place where you've um, resolved mm -hmm. as many of your own bleeds. You bleed out energies you don't mean. You say things that aren't appropriate. You get outraged by somebody else's whatever, instead of being able to just gently respond and, and recognize that, oh, yeah, I've been that way too. I understand this anger. I understand this. I felt it. I lived it. And what happens is your body, your nervous system begins to relax. Right. And with that relaxation, you can be present wherever you are mm -hmm. and be authentically connected with the person you're talking to, regardless of where they go. Mm -hmm. And I find compassion. You can love other people. But to be compassionate is to be unconditionally loving. Well, what does that mean, really? How can you be unconditionally loving? What does that really mean? Yeah. I mean, I look at people today who are harming the planet. Mm -hmm. And I can feel my feeling of, oh, my dear Lord, I couldn't bear to be as lost as they are. Mm -hmm. I know that place where I've been lost. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to be unconscious of my behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not even about I can forgive them. It's not about forgiving. Mm -hmm. It's about recognizing where the person is and accepting them anyway. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you agree. Doesn't mean you won't even fight against it or try to change it in some way if it's, if it's damaging to somebody else. But it's not in training with them by becoming where they are in order to hit them or get even with them or stop them. or So I think presence is about allowing your vibrational self. And presence is about the chakras. It's about coming into a place where your, your groundedness, your fire is harmonious with your air, right. your lightheartedness, your transcendent self. Right. So that they can live in harmony. What I'm learning from you is that your life experience and your experience in understanding the nature of compassion within your own personal life, as well as in the global field, has been very much the material, the creative material, the creative food for your own compositions and your own vocal expression as a singer, as a, as a public performer as well. Absolutely. Mm. I think that when I first started singing, I, I was in a very religious phase and I was singing to the glory of God. So I learned what it was like to go beyond myself in an ecstatic kind of reaching for the stars. Mm. And then, of course, you find out that you're, you're mortal and you're, you know, you've got, you got a ways to go. <laughs> and so... I became really interested in learning how to be unconditionally compassionate with myself mm. as well as others. Mm -hmm. And then I became, of course, interested in mythology, mm -hmm. interested in that we're really mythic beings beyond being 
physical beings. Right. We're spiritual mythic beings. We live in many dimensions at the same time, a very practical physical plane, and then quite a transcendent plane. And, and then in a place of story, mm-hmm. where the ancient stories mm-hmm. have been informing us how to be, who to be, what to be. Mm-hmm. And we take on stories, mm-hmm. and that myth that we create for ourselves mm-hmm. comes to a place of not serving us any longer, but in fact, holding us back. Mm-hmm. So then I started to write about that. Mm-hmm. I became really, really interested in those mythic places in myself where I was literally slaying the dragon within my own being. Yeah. You strike me as somebody who is, I mean, what I would call a receiver of revelation. And this is a kind of capacity that very often is struck out of us in childhood. Children, very often you will see this extraordinary, spontaneous, imaginal realm unfolding and evolving and it seems as if whatever has happened for you in your life that life force that capacity to receive revelation to to keep feeding and fueling and to be nourished by your own imaginal forces has never been downtrodden or taken away from you on the contrary it seems to have just evolved and grown throughout your whole life You know, it's it's interesting. I've never thought of it that way before. But what is interesting, I was never a good student. I was always far, 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 (laughs) far behind the rest of the class. Hmm. And we literally used to have Mark's Day where your class would get up three times a year in front of the whole school and and the A students would be applauded and then go and sit down and the B and the C plus and the C. And then anyone who had failed was left standing for a minute of silence in front of the whole school. Oh, my God. <laughs> and this is where I got my training for the work I would do in the world, you know, being on the stage alone. Oh, my God. And I always, I believe that was one of the worst things that happened to me. And yet, as I have grown I realized it was the greatest blessing because I never felt I had a mind that could comprehend intricacies of complex philosophies and truths. And, you know, so I wasn't drawn to other people's thoughts. And I had a feeling if I compete, I'm going to fail. If I think that I'm intellectual enough to be able to write something profound about the cosmic undulations of the universe, you know, I'm going to fail. So I found solace in my imagination. Was that because you knew you couldn't really trust the confines of the educational process you were going through, and therefore you, but you stayed true to your own innate understanding of what mattered? I, I think so. I think so. I think, I, I don't think I did it consciously. Uh-huh. But Something in me yeah. had a feeling that there was something in my, in my body, in my heart, that was fascinated by what I thought, <laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah. what I experienced. Yeah. So it had to be in the flesh. Yes. I had to actually feel something to trust it. Right. And even in my religious life, when I was 14, 15 in that area, when I was absolutely sure how the universe worked, 
when it came to a choice point mm. of do I trust what my heart knows to be true and what I'm being told, mm -hmm. I chose my heart. And where did that knowledge, where did that wisdom, if you like, come from? Were you taught that? Was there any individual or circumstance in your childhood that really encouraged that or inspired that? Or was it just there from birth? I think what encouraged me the most was I grew up on a sugarcane farm in Zululand and I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time in nature mm. with the animals, mm. with the growing things, mm. a lot of time alone, mm -hmm. you know, playing out in the cane fields or wherever mm. I was. And I trusted nature. Mm. I mm. saw a harmony I didn't consciously say this is harmonizing. Mm. It was just a natural place. I had a relationship with this fabulous white rooster that loved me and anyone else except my mother that came anywhere near him. He would be flying after them, pecking at their heels. You know, everyone was terrified of him. And I think that instilled in me something It was like a gift. Yeah. It, it instilled in me a sense that I was connected in some way, mm -hmm. that I had a special way of being with animals. Brilliant. And it, in a way, carried throughout my life. You know, and that's why I live in the bush now. I mean, right. I'm, we're literally, as you know, sitting here on the edge of the wilderness. <laughs> and I love it. So I've always felt that uh, this was naturally in me. As time has gone on, I've really understood, and I found, I've come to it through my music, is really going into the ideas, mm. like the yin-yang sign, for instance. Mm. I've loved symbols, and looking at the yin-yang sign mm. and realizing at a certain point how very yin I was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because yin is the black teardrop that only can needs a little dot of white. Mm -hmm. Everything else is in the dark. Mm. I lived most of my life in the dark. I didn't know I was doing well. I didn't know where I was going. Mm. I often felt very lost. But that darkness mm. only needed a little dot of knowing, and it gave me the courage to move forward. Whereas the masculine principle needs to bring everything out into the light. Mm. I like to say it can only tolerate a little bit of not knowing. Not knowing. And then he automatically wants to take that not knowing into a place which is a scientific idea or a thought. And uh, that's why, like Einstein, when he played his violin, was often when his best ideas came to him. Mm -hmm. Because he was floating in a resonance of sound, mm -hmm. not knowing anything, but feeling the beauty of the music. And it freed his psyche to perceive from that little dot of light, mm -hmm. boom. And that got transferred into this yang side where he tried to figure out what he knew was true. It would take him two, three years to figure out how to explain it. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? So that his insights, his insights into the theory of relativity and so on, I've heard that too, that uh, music was the gateway. It was the gateway. Yeah. Mm. And mm. I think that the Renaissance people are people who really are in touch with their feeling mm. as much as their mind. Right, right. 
And they really are when you go into quantum physics, of course, where it's how they say the universe is energy, mm-hmm. resonance, mm-hmm. waves of sound, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and consciousness mm-hmm. is consciousness mm-hmm. to be aware. Mm-hmm. So when you have an intention mm-hmm. to understand relativity and you have the passion fueling your system. So you know your intention is to pierce through that. And then all of this beauty and energy and life force comes up when you're playing the violin. It charges, goes all the way up your body into the psyche and boom, Mm. you're open up Mm. to see what you haven't seen before. Right. What comes out of not knowing and touches the knowing part of yourself that cannot go into the mystery because it already knows what's true. Mm. So it must be in touch with its not knowing Mm. and fall in love with not knowing, Mm -hmm. which is music. I mean, we don't know where we're going when we're improvising. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. you and I've done a little bit on the side. (laughs) It's it's very delicious. (laughs) That uncertainty principle is at the heart of it. It is at the heart of it. And the irony is, when you're improvising with someone, Mm -hmm. there is a third person in the room. Mm -hmm. And it is the music, Mm -hmm. the music that is feeding into and through both of you to create something you would never think of on your own, Mm -hmm. and nor would whoever's playing with you. Right. And then there's a moment you're singing and, and writing and creating and having this wonderful experience. And suddenly, both of you, without even saying a word, just end the song and it's done. And you go, how did I know it was time to end? (laughs) Well, you didn't know. Yeah. You felt something Mm. that Mm. was not in your consciousness. Mm. It was an energetic that said, without you knowing it, saying it, Mm. it's okay. Right. So that knowing is such an integral part of the whole musical process and what either by its presence really makes a performance or really makes a public speech come to life or really makes two people who've been at odds with each other for decades suddenly be able to hear each other again. Yeah. And it would seem as if what we're speaking of right now is perhaps a missing piece, a missing link in our musical educational world, certainly in the Western world, where a lot of the connection with the Indigenous indigenous wisdom of sound has been lost in other words the musical expression is not so much now an integral part of our everyday lives if it is it shows up as a performance somewhere that is is delivered by a group of trained elite individuals for whom we have to then pay money to go and hear yeah where i grew up on the farm in zululand yeah going you know down on the back of the truck down to see the sun come up and the men working the field. I mean, obviously there's political thoughts about this now, but Mm. at the time it was just magic. Mm. And then you'd hear from across the field, you know, from all over the field, this fabulous sound. And then they would go into a song, but each of them singing to their body rhythm. So one person going, (laughs) 
So it's all these different sounds depending on how that person's body sang. Right. Yeah. It wasn't a song. It was it was a song that right. was being made up on the spot. And if one person was very tired and having to swing the machete and do what he had to do, and his song would be totally different, but it would be empowering him. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I grew up with. Amazing. I grew up with music right out of the present moment. Right. And the natural voice. And the natural yeah. voice. Yes. And everyone, you know, not even thinking twice about just being creative, just mm. making up sound. Yeah. Fabulous sound. Yeah. And mm. I used to just love it. Yeah. Just love it. Yeah. No self-consciousness, no, no, no time for any of that. Exactly. Yeah. No time for any, just this beautiful sound. Mm. And some people didn't have what you consider the lead voice, but always found their part. Right. Do you have a sense that given the, the wild and turbulent times that we're living in, that this understanding of the natural voice, the natural use of the voice, is something that could really be brought into the world now. I in, think it's essential. In a form that really can assist us. In Well, do you remember in the 60s mm. when we were hundreds of thousands of people marching together? Mm-hmm. We all sang. We knew we had songs in common. Mm -hmm. And it fueled. Mm. I mean, the major taboo song in South Africa was which is now the national anthem. Yeah, I love that one. I I mean, that that was forbidden. Incredible. Because it was a protest song. It was about just love Africa. We love your Africa, you know. And to be able to see that song is inherent to our mm. being. Mm. You sit around a campfire, somebody mm. will start with a camp song. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's a hunger in the soul mm. to sing. Mm. Because singing is actually finding your voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And people who can't find their voice, yeah. very often when they, you know, in the workshops that I did for years, mm. trying to get people down mm. into the body, mm. you know, to find what, felt real mm. to them mm. and often it would be a song they learned years ago and they get up to sing it and as they sang it tears would start to stream mm. because they were connecting with their natural voice with right. something that touched them they only you choose the songs you want to sing because they touch you for some reason mm-hmm. and i think our culture our usual religions mm-hmm. are breaking down right. in the sense that they're coming into a different configuration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So people aren't going necessarily to church every Sunday to sing. Right. We That's don't true. have in the West any songs. Right. right. We don't know what to sing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the choral movement seems to be... Coming back a bit. Really coming back. Yeah. It would seem that is there. But so much of what we've just been sharing about presence and the capacity to listen, the capacity to, to navigate a whole spectrum of inclusiveness and communication that really empowers another and brings a sense of unification between people and so on. A lot of that has been missing in our music education. Mm-hmm. But do you think there's a chance that we can bring that through? It would seem as if our children are really 
flagging up an impatience for a new form of communication, which inevitably has to be led by that compassionate ground, or it has to be established, it has to be rooted in compassionate awareness. And there's no question that singing and sound and music and shared music, shared sound, as you say, in the 60s, I wonder what kind of sound is Today would be. coming through now, you know. Yeah. It's interesting because most of the songs, it's not that easy to sing with mm-hmm. anymore mm. because melodies are different. Mm. It's more about the individual expressing the individual so that the individual can get somewhere. Right. Yes. You know, yes. and so it's not about, can I create something that we can share? Yes. Yes. It's more about, can I create something so I stand out? And because we live in a, you know, we live in a world now where um, you can see who are the stars mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many people don't hear their own music. They hear the music of the culture and imitate it. Right. So they don't yeah. discover their own voice, their mm-hmm. true authentic voice. They have a already listening for what could sell or catch on today. Right. That's a totally different listening. Right. That's an external listening right. as opposed to going down into the body. And what, what am I here to bring forward? Yeah. You know, what wants to sing out of my mouth? Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, it's, there's no question that, I mean, we've opened up a lot of territory in this <laughs> exploration <laughs> around the nature of compassion, what is and what is yeah. not present in our world. And something perhaps I would love to talk with you about more in the future and explore with you is what you've been sharing with me during our time together, staying together, around the transformative power of invisible presence and and what it's like for us as wisdom elders, women and men in our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and how we are holding something which doesn't even necessarily have to have a visible outer form, but is nevertheless holding the sort of tectonic plates of wisdom. Totally. That uh, doesn't require a visible or even an audible out of public form, but is nevertheless really holding the future and what is potential through an understanding of compassion. I think you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. I mean, that's why I'm excited to work with you and to see what will come of our quiet time together. Yes. You know, because I think that when you want to vibrate the vibrating matrix of which everything is made, the quantum soup, whatever you want to call it, it's about the depth to which you can go. And that is not looking out of yourself and saying, it's out there somewhere, and if I learn the right tune, I'll have it. It really is this depth of compassion Mm -hmm. and concern Mm -hmm. and adoration and reverence and devotion to life as it is. Beautiful. Well, on that beautiful note, let's complete this conversation. And thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Chloe. Always just so sweet to be with you. And you too. Thank you for your incredible compassionate presence as well. Inside.